The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or possibly listening through the internet at wagp.net, and we do broadcasts around the world 24-7 through the internet, we welcome you. What do we do at the Bible Line for the next hour? We will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue or challenge in your life that you're facing and you want biblical counsel on. Well, if we can be of help, uh, just pick up the phone. Again, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or you can reach us directly here at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net, where you can write in or type in your question. If you do call, we do give preference to live callers or uh, if you don't want to go on the air, you can simply dictate your question to our phone receptionist, and we'll be receiving it here in the studio. Well, as always, Walter, it's great to be here as uh, post-Thanksgiving and an opportunity to open God's Word again, and a ton of questions come in. And, and by the way, if you do send in a question and you can't listen at that time, you will be emailed when your question is answered. All right, let's go ahead and get started. All right, yes, sir, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Alan out of Rinkin, Georgia, and he writes, Dr. Brogy, we recently had a member of our church preach a sermon in our pastor's absence. He preached from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, explaining that this passage teaches that God no longer speaks directly to us, but speaks through his word. I found that the majority of our uh, staff believes this as well, but I wanted your opinion. Well, it's a great question, and I, I tend to disagree with your pastor. I think he's on target. Uh, the text says here that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So I guess your question really has a couple of issues behind it. Uh, one, in what way does God speak today? Are there certain gifts that are revelationary in content? And the answer to revelational gifts is the answer is no. Uh, there were certainly gifts in the New Testament era where God could give direct revelation. It might be through the gift of tongues, which was always a real language, and then it was interpreted. It might be through the gift of prophecy, and where God would, through a man, through a woman, uh, make them a direct conduit of truth, where they would speak, thus saith the Lord. Again, this was before the Bible was completed, before the canon of Scripture was closed. Uh, so the Lord could speak through apostles and say, well, this is what the Lord 
would have me to say on this issue. Paul does that, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7. On the one hand, he says, this is what Jesus said about uh, this issue of marriage, and then he'll say a few verses later in 7.12, Jesus didn't address this issue, but I'm going to tell you what he said. So in these last days, and the last days really began with Christ uh, coming here on the earth. He came in such that when Peter on Pentecost uh, witnessed with thousands of other people the first coming of the Spirit to indwell individuals, he stood up and said, well, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. So the last days have been here with us since the birthday of the church. I believe we're in the last of the last days, but nonetheless, God is not giving new revelation. And so I guess there's two extremes. You've got the extreme of a Kenneth Copeland where, you know, God speaks directly to him. You've got the extreme of a Beth Moore where she gets text messages from God, so to speak. And Beth, this is what I want you to do as if God were dictating some particular truth or message. That's false. That's dangerous. That's what every cult is built on. Some extra book, some extra dream, some extra vision uh, where a person becomes some conduit of specific knowledge. No, we, we have a measuring stick. And the measuring stick, and by the way, that's what the word canon means from the Latin word. It means a measuring stick. And so the plumb line, the measuring stick today is Holy Scripture. And when God writes the last book of the Bible, he warns, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. And so there's that aspect, one extreme, that God is still speaking with new revelation. Uh, listen, the popes do that every time they have an ex-cathedra message. When the pope speaks on an issue of faith and morals from the chair, ex-cathedra, it's on the same level of Holy Scripture. Again, that's dangerous. That goes beyond the Scriptures. And this is why one of the key uh, phrases of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, uh, that God indeed has spoken through Scripture alone. Um, let me just say the other extreme is that God cannot in any way personalize his message that he has for us. And that's certainly uh, wrong as well. God directs our steps. Uh, I think of Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But that counsel will not be in addition or contrary to God's word. Uh, Proverbs repeatedly underscores this, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What will he do? He'll make your path straight. Later in Proverbs, he'll say the heart of a man plans his ways, but God establishes his steps. So you commit your work to the Lord and your, your plans are established. He leads you, he guides you. So that leading, that guiding, that direction is not contrary to Holy Scripture. So there's a personal side. And so at the other end of the spectrum, you had a book that was written years ago called Decision Making in the, in the Will of God by Friesen. It was just wrong. Uh, he, he just had a lot of error in it, that God was not in any way personal. On the other end, you've got new revelation. The biblical balance, it sounds to me like your pastor hit, and he's right on target. 
that God has indeed spoken through the canon of Scripture, and that's where we need to give our attention. That's where we need to give our focus. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. I believe we have, uh, we're going to go to the phone lines, 843-525-1859, if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. I believe we have Gabriel from Greenville, South Carolina. Good morning, Gabriel. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Good morning. Um, can you all hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Go ahead, my friend. Okay. Um, so my question is, should I be a groomsman in my friend's wedding who professes to be a Christian but is sleeping and living with his fiance? That's a great question. And my simple answer would be no. I would commend your friend to say that, hey, listen, marriage is God's institution and you should be married, but neither do I want to endorse this uh, lifestyle that you're in so much so that you are confessing Jesus as Lord. By the way, let me ask a a question. Is your uh, friend a member of a Bible-believing New Testament church? Um, No, I don't believe so. Okay, I was going to say, if he were, then indeed he should be under church discipline. Uh, If your brother sins, reprove him. If he doesn't listen, take it to two or three. If he doesn't listen, bring it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, he should be removed. And so, number one, it would be a courtesy in the most loving act for you to go to your friend and say, you know, Joe, I'm thrilled that you want to get married and you want to have a physical relationship's a relationship within the confines of marriage, but what you're doing now is evil, and you confess to be a Christian, you're going to have a ceremony that is supposed to be celebrating Christ's relationship with his church when you are mocking the relationship of purity that he calls his people to. In fact, you've been living in a lifestyle of adultery, and this is what God says about lifestyle. It's not that a Christian couldn't fall into an act of immorality. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. We're not talking about perfection. That won't happen until Christ comes again, but we are speaking of direction. And if the direction of a man's life is that of practicing sin, adultery, then Paul says in Galatians 5, he says it in Ephesians 5, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you have all the marks of an unbeliever. And so for me to participate in your wedding, I'm basically saying, okay, you're a Christian, maybe not the best, but you're a Christian. When my bigger concern for you is the fact that you are very potentially not even saved. And so that's speaking the truth in love. And that would put a a seed in his heart to get him to think, to get him to evaluate. Um, how far away is the wedding from the time that you've been asked to be a groomsman? Is it six months, a year? Is it next week? It's about a year away. Yeah. So I, this is what I would do to, I would do, I would say, well, look, you know, if, if you decide that uh, you would like me to participate, I will, if either she moves out or you move out and you live a celibate life until, um, you know, the wedding, then I can participate. But I can't otherwise. It's just going to be a total mockery for you two to go down that aisle. Everyone will know that you're living together. And for you to celebrate Christ's relationship with the church, which was what marriage is supposed to picture according to Ephesians 5, and I'm there celebrating immorality with you, 
I can't do that. But if you show the evidences that you really know the Lord and you're willing to move out, I'd be willing to participate and um, be a part. And I would remind him that walking down the aisle, walking down the aisle and saying, I do, I will, does not change a man's character. What you walk down the aisle with in your wedding day is the character that you have. It's not that God can't change it, but it's what you have. And if you're living immorally, if you have the character trait of an immoral man, walking down the aisle does not change that. And so it is very wise, in my judgment, for a couple to exercise self-control. One of the things that I do in premarital counseling, and uh, we, if someone came to me and said, I want to be married, uh, great. Um, it can't be less than six months from today. Why? Because that's how long it takes to do the premarital counseling. But before I can even agree to do the premarital counseling, I have to, in my own mind, believe that I can marry them. And one of the questions that they ask, that they answer in the premarital form is, are you involved in any kind of sexual intimacy? And if so, are you willing to refrain from all sexual intimacy? And we talk about this. Again, if you can't trust your spouse before you're married, what makes you think you can trust them after you're married? And again, that woman, that man shouldn't trust their spouse because if they will be immoral and break God's holy law now, what makes them think that getting married will change that? And so it's not untypical. You read different stats, but roughly around 60% of couples that live together before they get married end up in a divorce. Uh, And the reason, the number one reason, is adultery. Again, if a man can't control his passions before he gets married, he won't control them after. But if he does, it brings a great sense of security to that relationship so that if he were a Marine and he were deployed or he was working for a company and he has to be, you know, in another state for the weekend or for a couple of weeks, his wife or he has over his bride a sense of security that they are being faithful because they were willing to practice that beforehand. And again, who knows, you know, maybe he is a Christian and he would, if he is, he'll hear you. He'll definitely hear you. And then he'll confront his bride And then the question is, what will she do? And maybe she'll take offense at that, which if he's a real Christian, then he's marrying an unbeliever. Uh, I remember meeting with a couple uh, that had visited our church, and I went to uh, share the gospel with them. Actually, I didn't know all the particulars until I got there. They both filled out a visitor's card, but they had different last names at the same address. Uh, Occasionally, it is an issue of, Uh, some woman who wants to keep her maiden name, which is not wise. Again, that would just express a a shallow view of male headship that God assigns. The woman doesn't take her husband's name. The man doesn't take the woman's name. The woman takes her husband's name, and part of that is recognizing male headship, which is what God has designed in a healthy marital relationship. And so I asked them, they said, no, we're, we're living together. And, of course, I walked them through the plan of salvation. They both bowed their head and received Christ. And they said, well, can we join the church? I said, well, of course not, not living together. Because if your salvation was real tonight, then this relationship will break out. And so, no, I can't baptize you, which is the first step a believer should make, because uh, you would not have shown the evidences that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
You know what that guy did? The next day he moved out. He lived in the backyard of a fellow Marine and set up a tent in that Marine's yard with his permission and lived in a tent for six weeks. Um, and then, of course, I couldn't marry them within the time frame they wanted to get married. Then he married her. Uh, but still, that showed conversion. That showed evidence. So I hope that helps. Um, anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Crawl on today's Bible line, again, that is 843-525-1859. We're going to stay with the phone lines, Pastor Crawl. I believe we have Brooke from Beaufort, South Carolina. Good morning, Brooke. You are live with Pastor Crawl. What is your question? Good morning, my question is about angels. Um, I've recently read that the cherubim and the seraphim have extra wings that cover their faces, I believe, when they are before God worshiping Him. Do other angels also have something that covers them, you know, when in the presence of God worshiping Him, or is it just those two? And exactly what is the reason for this? Is it just to cover their glory, as I've recently read, um, when in His presence, or is there another reason? Well, it's it's a great yeah no great question. So let me make a commercial here uh, while we're at it. There is a course that we offer in our Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called Angelology, and it's divided into two two halves: holy angels and fallen angels, elect angels, and fallen angels are known as demons. And one third of all the angels rebel against God. Those are fallen angels. Those today are known as demons. With that said, there are different types of angels. For instance, you referenced Isaiah 6. Seraphim stood above him. And again, here's this king, Uzziah, and he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's given a vision. Uh, Isaiah is given a vision in the year of King Uzziah of the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So this is a classification of angels, different from cherubim. And again, I go through all the various classes of angels, from seraphim to cherubim to a special angel, which maybe we shouldn't even call an angel. Maybe we should just call him the messenger of the Lord. But he's an angel of angels, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But yes, these angels, seraphim, their principal ministry is to declare and to honor in heaven the holiness of God. If there's one aspect of God that is underscored here in Isaiah 6, it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Um, People say, well, angels having wings is just some medieval invention. Not really. The text says here specifically that they have wings. This particular class has six wings, again, to underscore and affirm the holiness of God by the ministry they have there at the throne of God. But in Daniel 10, we find other angels who are flying through uh, heaven. Even in the Revelation, there's an angel who preaches the eternal gospel flying through heaven. So angels can have wings. Your question is a very involved question. It's about a 10-week answer uh, so I'm going to direct you for for some in-depth study to searchthescripture.org, type, type in angelology and start with holy angels. And actually in the first lesson, you don't have to listen to all 10 weeks. 
I deal with all the different classes of angels and the specificities behind each class. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes in as anonymous. Pastor Carl, it is a live dictation. They write, Sarah Young in the book Jesus Calling speaks in the first person as speaking for the Lord Jesus. We know that this is not right. And my question is, what about songs that put words in Jesus' mouth like I Miss My Time With You from Larnell Harris? Is that also wrong? Well, um, I don't know the particular song that you are referencing by Lionel Harris for someone to say I Miss My Time With You. If that's Lionel Harris speaking, then there would be nothing wrong with that because I could say, Lord, I, I miss my time with you today. And it's been so, you know, but if it's God speaking to Lionel, I miss my time with you, then he is actually walking on very shaky ground. He's doing the same thing that um, Jesus Calling does. And by the way, there's an article at searchthescriptures.org um, when this book came out, Jesus Calling, someone thought they were doing me a favor, and they were in one respect. Um, this woman who's now in heaven, she gave me a beautiful leather copy of the book as a Christmas gift and thought I would enjoy it. And by the time I read the introduction, I said, this is dangerous, this is heretical. And I wrote like a four or five page response to it. And it's somewhere on the Search the Scriptures website. And you might want to read that and someone else might want to read it, but it has sold all kinds of books. And this is a dangerous truth, much like the very first question that came out of Savannah in reference to is God speaking today. And these people who have these first person experiences uh, where they are putting words in the mouth of God. They're in violation of what God warns at the end of the revelation. And you can come up with all kinds of wacko things. And now the authority is what God personally has said to you as if it's a thus saith the Lord statement. And in my judgment, most of these are just ego-driven statements. People who want to show off like they have this super spiritual relationship with the Lord. And most of these people, if you just study them historically, they end up going down the tubes. Um, so... Again, I don't know the song by Lionel Harris, um, but if indeed he's doing that, then uh, someone who knows him and loves him should confront him on that because he's crossed a line, and uh, it's a line that he shouldn't want to cross because in the very nature of the song, he is encouraging the same kind of dictational behavior that God can provide for us. Great question. I think we've had some more come in, so let's keep going. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Gabriel Stodemeyer, and he writes, My church is building a building that will cost approximately $10.6 million. For reference, the current building is in great shape, but it seems that the church has grown out of it, especially because we offer a lot of different groups that meet at our church not to mention on Sundays where we have three services at different times, and we try to fit all the members and visitors in that space. My question is, how do we judge if this is truly what God would have us do with this money? The elders have said that if the body tied 10%, we would not go into debt. However, 
I do not think that the majority of members do that, at least based on the national statistic. Well, it's a great question, and let me see if I can uh, respond to it. Um, You know, I think first and foremost, your church has to have some kind of theology of debt uh, before they proceed, because churches can get into trouble. They can significantly hinder uh, the kind of impact that God would want to give through them in ongoing types of ministries and certainly with the issue of missions. So they have to have a theology of debt. Is all debt opposed? Certainly not. And again, I have a course on biblical finances. You can find it at searchthescriptures.org. It's divided into six sections. It's about 130 pages of note-taking outlines. And one section concerns the Christian and debt. And we look at it not only in terms of personal debt, but just, just general principles. Again, God said in the book of Deuteronomy in the final chapters to Israel that if they would obey him, he would make them the lender. If they disobeyed, he would make them the borrower. So for God as a blessing to make Israel the lender tells you right off that not all debt is wrong. Uh, so sometimes people say, from Romans 13, owe nothing to anyone except love. That needs to be read in the context of Scripture. So all debt is not wrong. Most debt, sadly today, is wrong. People are not living within their means. And so if God has given you $35,000 to live on this year and you spend forty, you've gone beyond your means and you are presuming on the future. And that's not a wise thing to do. And so Christians, they think if I can just pay off my, you know, minimal payment on my credit card that I'm in good standing. No, I don't think so. And again, I would reference you to this course. So when it comes to a church, what you do find out is that A, all debt is not forbidden, but B, God is very conservative in his view of debt. In fact, every seven years in Israel's history, all debts were canceled. So if you came to me in year six and you wanted to borrow $20,000, I would know in year seven that debt would be canceled. And so I want to think carefully, do I want to loan you this $20,000 and is this wise? When I came to Community Bible Church in 1990, the people told me or asked me, when, when are we going to build our church? The last pastor said that you would start the process when, when he left and you came. And I said, well, you just bought a piece of property and you've paid $12 off the principal. And in my judgment, the property was the wrong property. Uh, It was a property that was landlocked that after a while, the church would reach its maximum growth and they would have to relocate. So it was not good stewardship. So I said, A, first, we're going to pay off the land. Uh, B, then we're going to save. And... As I shared with the elders, I said, I do not want to borrow money for longer than five years. So we paid off the land. And part of the problem was the people had actually never, the former pastor told me, he just died last month. Um, The former pastor told me and there was about 150 people coming. I looked at the offering. It was $1,800, $1,900 every week. Um, the annual budget was $125,000. I think that was our offering last week. Um, it was just like, hey, look, no one's giving. There's a real problem here. 
people are not being taught. And so the former pastor told me he never preached a sermon on money. I said, well, that was a big mistake. Uh, and as he asked me openly, I said, well, look, um, you reacted. You gave a knee-jerk reaction to the abuses of money in the 1980s through guys like Jimmy Swaggart, uh, discussing what Swaggart did, Jim Baker, PTL Ministries, absolutely disgusting uh, what those men did. And that was the abuse of money, not to mention the growing prosperity theology movement with Kenneth Copeland and uh, Hagen and so many others. Uh, but the scripture teaches much about money. Half of Christ's parables concern the issue of stewardship about money. And so, yes, tithing, it's a biblical principle. Some say it's under the law and doesn't apply today. Listen to my last sermon in Malachi. I think that might be helpful to someone. Uh, No, tithing is actually not part of the ceremonial law. It's part of the moral law of God. It's initiated ever before Moses codifies tithing. It was practiced by Abraham before the law was given. Moses will later um, command it. Jesus will certainly commend it. And none of us should be those who cancel it and say it has no application for today. But you're right. The average evangelical only gives about 3 to 4% of his income. So I think if I were in that church, if I were an elder, I'd want to say, well, what is our plan if we borrow $10 million? Uh, we, we built a, by the way, that first building we built, um, my goal was five years. By God's grace, we paid it off in three. Our next project was $12.5 million, and there was still a lot of turnkey expenses that I knew we would have when we went into the building. Um, we saved $8 million before we broke ground. Again, a uh, very conservative view of debt. And what happened in 2008, there was a big downturn in the economy. We moved into the building in 2007. By God's grace, we paid it off in under five years. So I think God has a very conservative view of debt. And if you are looking to spend, oh, a 30 years to pay off a building, that's very foolish and you're giving a lot of money to the bank that might have in turn gone to missions. On the other hand, you do have a problem. You are limited in the growth. And look, I was preaching three sermons every Sunday morning at 7.30, 9.15, and 11 o'clock, and you have no idea. And I preached an hour in each, each service, what that takes out of a pastor. And so you're, you're subtly killing your pastor, whether you know it or not, uh, So it sounds like, yeah, you're maxed out. You need a building, but you need a plan. And if it's a $10.6 million project, I wouldn't even begin to break ground until we had at least half the money in hand. Look, just to drop the plans that would be approved by your given county, wherever you're writing from, will take at least six months to a year uh, because you have to have architectural plans that meet county standards and every county is different. And then you have something you can show the people and here's what we're trying to do. And here's why we've chosen this amount of square feet with this particular layout. And that's just good, good stewardship. But again, this is in my judgment, a decision the elders of the church make. This is not something people vote on. Look, uh, when, when, People go into a meeting, and they're voting on a 5 10 15 $20 million project. None of those people are in the weeds of all the details that are involved. And many of them are not even involved in the actual um, logistics 
of whether or not the church can afford it. Uh, With that said, the elders ought to be able to say, this is our plan, this is our total income, Uh, this is our expectation to pay it off based on our total income. But again, if you have a starting goal, that will go a long way. And if your goal is to pay it off in a short period of time, that would be wise. So look, we came to Community Bible Church in 1990. There was 150 people on the second Sunday, an $1,800 offering. How do I know? I still have the church bulletin. And uh, the fact is, is that uh, we shortly outgrew the space we were in and the school that we were meeting. We finally found a piece of land that would work. And within five years, we moved into our first building. We outgrew that building. But again, we had a conservative view of debt. How many missionaries did we have had when we came to Community Bible Church? We had zero, none, zippo. We weren't supporting a single missionary, though there was one missionary couple who wanted to go to the field, and the church wanted to support them, but no money had yet been given. Uh, We are looking at potentially 50 new missionaries by God's grace in our next elders meeting. We support hundreds and hundreds of missionaries right now. So again, if you can reach more people, you're reaching more souls for Christ, you are potentially broadening your impact for Christ. But if you're packed out and you're trying to reach the unchurched and a family of five comes in and they can't even sit together and they're lost, they're not going to make some dramatic commitment to come back. They're going to say, this place is too crowded. I don't even feel welcomed. So these are issues you've got to weigh, and this is where your elders need to be making informed decisions. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Natalie out of Virginia, and she writes, I am a college student interested in working for a Bible translation ministry when I finish school. There are a lot of translation groups out out there, and I was wondering if there were any that you would recommend or not recommend. I want to find a group with a solid doctrinal foundation that is committed to sharing the gospel with the lost. Thank you for your help. Yeah, great, great. So um, there's a lot of Bible translation ministries out there. Probably the number one biggest best known would be Wycliffe Bible Translators, and they have a um, ministry known as a, a seed, seed Translation. In fact, our church has been involved with them in the execution of two particular Bible translations, uh, where, again, the Bible was not in written form, and by God's grace, our church uh, sponsored three books of the Bible, uh, where you had two New Testament books, say, and one Old Testament book, and by the time they were done, they had that book translated and available to people. The long-term goal, of course, would be to put all 66 books in their hands. Uh, some of the challenges with uh, certain Bible translation ministries, for instance, I'll give you an example, Wycliffe. Uh, we supported a young couple that went to work for Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, that particular agency in the place they were working did not respect that wife's commitment to be at home with her children. They wanted her to put the children in kind of a daycare on the campus so that she could be engaged in ministry. Look, her ministry is those children, uh, that those children are being raised right and properly. 
And so, of course, I encouraged them to challenge that policy, and they did, and they were given a waiver. But I'm not sure that they've changed that. You're going as a single woman. It might have different ramifications. Pioneer Ministries, we have people that we support with Pioneers. Uh, The seed company, which I mentioned, which is kind of under uh, Wycliffe Bible, uh, you have groups like um, the American Bible Society, United Bible Society, um, Sim USA. Uh, those are all good. And again, the focus becomes where are they doing the translation, in what circumstances, frontier missions. We, we support some people with that. Team does it, but I'll tell you, for instance, we have a young couple from our church that went to work for Team Ministries. And in the process, and Again, historically, this has been a great outfit. We have in the past supported people with team. When they, and we were supporting this couple who, was, who were raising their financial support. And midstream, team ministry changes their view on the role of women in terms of egalitarianism in rejecting their historical position on complementarianism. So women could now preach over men. And this, of course, is not only a violation of Scripture, it was a violation of their conscience, and so they had to rescind their involvement with it. So you have to get down into the specifics if you go to work for an organization because things are changing fast. I was involved for 12 and a half years with the largest missions agency in the world. It was called Campus Crusade for Christ. And they were in over 100 nations of the world, and now they're going south. There are still thousands of great people that work for crew, but they are in on shaky ground. And so you have to ask some specific questions. So I would definitely consider Wycliffe or Pioneers or the Seed Company as maybe uh, starting places, and then uh, Frontiers even, and then step back and say, okay, what are your specific um, stances on these issues, uh, because you want to be able to, with full, clear, um, unhindered conscience, raise money, because you're not only raising money for yourself, you're raising a certain percentage of all that you take in for the organization as well. And so if you're raising money to do things that your conscience is in violation of, then you don't want to be engaged with that. So things are changing fast. So I would be, um, Really, I would be giving less than sound counsel to say, go with this organization, because they could have changed from six months ago from the last time I looked. That's how fast things are changing. Anyway, great question, and I admire her commitment um, from this woman from Virginia, and when you find a a good, uh, solid group that you're interested in, uh, call us here at Community Bible Church. We'll send you our own application, because we've got to make sure you're in sync with us, and I'm sure you are, that you would even ask, search the scriptures, the question, uh, and we would be potentially delighted to be involved in that ministry with you. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for us on this morning's Bible line. Our next question comes from Tim out of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he writes, can a Christian attend a gay marriage and still be considered a Christian, or would it be a sin to attend one? Well, it has nothing to do with, like, if I attend a gay marriage that I've lost my salvation. Now, if you're saying that 
if a person attends a gay marriage, it means he's not a Christian, not necessarily. Some Christians, I suppose, have very foolishly attended a gay marriage, Christian people, with no qualms about it. And that's not a wise thing to do. Uh, what they are basically doing is endorsing what God calls an abomination. The, the, the problem is that a gay wedding, it's a celebration of two people who are living in a lifestyle that God calls immoral, unnatural, and an abomination. And Scripture says marriage should be honored by all. I just preached a sermon on that not long ago from the book of Hebrews. And a so-called gay wedding, gay marriage, it dishonors marriage. It perverts the meaning of marriage. And I hope you know, of course, it's not a marriage at all. Abraham Lincoln once asked a young man, he said, if a dog has four legs, and if you call the tail a leg, how many legs does the dog have? And the young man says, well, Mr. President, he has five legs. And he said, no, you can call a tail whatever you want it to mean but it's still a tail, and he has four legs. And you can say, even the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, that two people of the same sex are married. You can call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage. A gay union is not a marriage in God's eyes. God ordained marriage to be between a man and a woman and for a lifetime. It's a one-flesh relationship. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And so God specifically, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, uh, speaks that people who are engaged in this kind of lifestyle have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so you deny that when you attend it. You deny that when you attend that wedding. And people say, well, I want to be there so that maybe I can support the individual, you know, and have an impact in their life. Look, um, there's no way around the fact that a gay wedding ceremony is a celebration of evil. Um, we don't support uh, an, al- an alcoholic friend uh, by going to a bar with him and drinking with him. No, we, we try to get him out of that bar. Uh, we support a friend who's addicted to pornography uh, by making him accountable. We don't help him to organize his magazines into some uh, systematic collection. And you're going to be supportive of your friend who is embracing what God calls evil by not attending. And if he's offended by that, let him be offended. You've at least placed a seed in his mind that it's evil. Look, I don't care if it's your own brother, your sister. You do not want to be involved in something that God calls an abomination. It's not a light thing to do. It doesn't mean that you can't have a friendship. In fact, the fact that they would even ask you, unless you're just on a mandatory list, indicates that they view you as a friend. And Jesus was certainly a friend of sinners. But to call yourself a friend and to say it's okay, in fact, your lifestyle is leading you directly to hell because it's a denial of truth, and you're suppressing all that God has written in your heart and in the holy pages of Scripture, and you call yourself a friend of that person, that's no friendship at all. That's one of the most unloving things that you can do. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes in as a live dictation, Pastor Carl, from Terry out of Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, she writes, I know, I know God gave the land to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, 
Is there a verse in the New Testament where this is also addressed? Also, would you please let me know how Rabbi Hanok Teller is? Well, by God's grace, Rabbi Hanok Teller is doing great. Um, Terry may not have been listening to the Bible line, but three days after the war started, we actually interviewed him for the first 10 minutes. Uh, so that would be 8, 9, 10, probably around October 11th or 12th if mm-hmm. you go back into the Bible line archive. And he shared some interesting things. I speak to him uh, on the What's uh, app, WhatsApp app or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, the WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Right. Yeah, I say WhatsApp. It's WhatsApp. <laughs> and uh, uh, he'll do live dictation, and I'll respond back to him. In fact, uh, recently he was telling me that how all of Israel has come together, the, the liberal left, the conservative right, Orthodox Jews, liberal Jews, atheistic Jews, for survival purposes. Of course, he had 18 children. He bought a dryer that was used to basically be in a laundromat uh, that you have to put your shekels in, and that's what he's used. So he and his family dry clothes. Why? Because they got 300,000 people in Jerusalem alone that are displaced who have zero home. These are Jewish people from the north who are under the threat of Hezbollah, who doesn't simply have rockets but missiles, and so they have evacuated those northern cities uh, and they are finding shelter in homes all across Jerusalem and other places uh, south of that. And so he dries clothes. So he's doing fine. Uh, in terms of your other questions, certainly you can't separate the old from the new, as Andy Stanley would want to do. Uh, the land promises initially are given in the Old Testament. For instance, let me give you one from Zechariah 14. You can read Genesis, by the way, 12, 15, 17, where God says that he gives the land to Israel as an eternal possession. Um, but I'm thinking about a future day uh, when the Lord comes back. This is a messianic passage. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Question, why is Jesus coming back to the Mount of Olives? Now you have your amillennialist who says the next great event is we're all just swept into heaven and that's the end and that God has abandoned any kind of commitment to the Jewish people because we are the new Jerusalem. We are the new Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. God has not abandoned the people of Israel. He has made them a chosen nation. Now, just because he chose them as a nation doesn't mean that everyone within the nation is going to heaven. People within the old covenant era still had to acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God and believe the revelation he had given to that point. In Jews today who die and go to heaven— must call upon Yeshua, Jesus in English, in order to be saved. But how did God fulfill the prophecies for the first coming? Every single one of them, he literally fulfilled over 300 of them. Dr. Walford, who is the president of DTS, when I was there, said there was 333 he he fulfilled. Uh, In either case, He literally fulfilled every single prophecy. So why should we apply a different principle for interpretation when it comes to the land of Israel or any of the prophecies that concern the second coming? 
So has Jesus ever put his feet? Has the Messiah? And by the way, every Orthodox Jew views this as a Messianic passage. Has the Messiah ever put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two? Never. Will he literally do this? Yes. He's not coming back, as I said on Sunday, to Beijing or to Dallas, Texas, or to Washington, D.C., or to Paris, France. God is coming back to Israel. Why? Because he hasn't forsaken the people of Israel. He's not done. Read the last few verses in Jeremiah 31. It says, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are in the sky, that's how long God will be committed to the people of Israel. And if you're with me in my prophetic series, uh, God's prophetic schedule, I dealt with the new Jerusalem, and it's interesting that forever in eternity, while God will have one people, so to speak, one elect people made up of Jew and Gentile alike, just as he does now, and will be one covenant people in heaven, the fact that the Savior came in a Jewish body will never be erased any more than the nail scars in his hand. The fact that the names of the 12 apostles are inscribed in the foundation stones, the fact that the names of the 12 tribes are inscribed um, on the uh, stones and the gates of the New Jerusalem is not by accident because we will acknowledge what God did in time and space throughout all of eternity. So is God done with Israel? Is he done with um what he has said in reference to the land, just read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Who does it concern? It concerns the Jewish people. It's a picture of the 70th week prophecy of Daniel, what God will do in the 70th week of that great prophecy, that final seven-year time frame, which is divided into two halves. And where does the Messiah come back to? Well, the Revelation tells us he comes back to Israel. Why does he come back to Israel? Because he's not done with Israel. He's going to rule and reign from Israel, as Isaiah, the final chapters, again affirm. Why? Because he's not done with Israel. God said to Abraham that this is an eternal covenant that I am making. And so um, God made some promises to Israel concerning the land. And it's interesting that even though this current planet will be destroyed it will be melted with fire. God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem where your loved ones go today will literally actually physically come and descend on the earth, and God will um, allow us to spend eternity in that, the capital city of a whole new heaven and a new earth. So um, read Revelation 19, read Zechariah 14, read Matthew 24 and 25, you'll see he's coming back to Israel. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Ann out of South Carolina, and she writes, I'm a Christian single woman desiring to marry one day. I understand that a man is to pursue a woman, but I do not understand what a woman is to do in the interim. I tend to put people that I am interested in at arm's length as to not show my feelings or pursue, and I fear that I am sending the opposite signal. I just do not want any relationship. I want to be intentional. And if I only date once, that is okay, even better in my mind. Is there a point in which a woman can show interest in, and be inviting, or are we to wait for God's hand to work, providing us with a godly guy without any movement? Oh, these are, this is really a great question, and, and it's an important question, Anna, that you're asking. A couple of books that would 
I think, be excellent Bible studies on this. And again, I recommend books that get you into the book, the Bible. And sometimes there's a need for a systematic study of a particular subject, like the last caller, two callers ago on angels. And so what do we do in the course in angelology? We look at dozens and dozens of passages, and we systematically bring them together on that particular subject. So Elizabeth Elliot, she was married to Jim Elliot. Uh, he, of course, was slaughtered by the Aka Indians. She married a second time. Her husband died. She married a third time. Uh, a very, very godly woman. She wrote a book called Quest for Love. I would definitely uh, highlight that book. That's a book my wife and I both recommend. And she wrote another one called Passion and Purity. And I think another one called Let Me, Let Me Be a Woman. Those three books, Let Me Be a Woman, uh, Passion and Purity, and Quest for Love that deal with this subject in a little more depth. But just generally speaking, I would encourage you to first and foremost as a single woman, and I don't know how old you are, maybe you're 18 or 19, focus first and foremost on your relationship with the Lord and growing in that relationship. I'm assuming you're a member of a Christ-centered Bible-believing church where you're growing and, and even have found a place to serve I'm assuming, and if you're not, you need to be spending time daily alone with the Lord because to find the right guy, you need to be the right kind of woman. And indeed, it's a gift from God while you're single to use those years wisely as investment years. You don't walk down the aisle as a mature, godly person. You walk down with whatever you are, hopefully a mature, godly person. And I think as you're using your, your spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and you're surrounding yourself among other believers and being intentional in your relationships. In other words, the, the place to find potentially a godly man is not in the bar room, but it's in the church house where the people of God gather. But neither would I say it's wrong for you to be friendly with men. There's a difference between being friendly and being flirtatious, a huge difference. So don't be afraid of your own shadow. Don't be afraid to say, hey, my name is um, uh, Gloria, and what, what's your name? And I, I don't think I've seen you here before. And there's a difference between that and being flirtatious. And again, you, you can't find a potential mate if you're not friendly. He that would have friends must show himself friendly, the proverb says. And so your ultimate friend, other than the Lord himself, would be the person that you marry. And so, again, you want to marry a guy that can lead you, who's deeply committed to Christ, but you can't get to know that fella unless you potentially spend some time with him. And a group setting can often be a good starting place, and then to see where it goes from there. Well, the hour is gone, but we're so glad that you could join us today for the Bible Line. I invite you to Community Bible Church if you don't have a place of worship this Sunday as we continue our series in the prophet Malachi.